But it's a blessing and an honor to be able to be here tonight, especially to talk about this subject, that after 40 years in the ministry, I realize a lot of Christians have a struggle just holding a normal conversation with an evolutionist because it's perceived that they have all the science on their side and nothing could be further from the truth. And so I'm hoping by the time we're finished with this four-week series, you will understand just how little science they actually have on our side. God is not going to create something that refutes himself. And so it's all there, it's just a matter of noticing it. Also tonight I want to uh, tell you that there is a reading list available, and I don't know if, uh, Sister Jen, did we put it on the back table? Okay, there is a documentation and reading list back there. It opens with a quote from Thomas Jefferson, a quote that when I read it in some of its literature, I just thought this has got to be heard, I wish this was heard by every single American. And then an opening paragraph, and then there's a list of books that I highly recommend on both evolution and dinosaurs. I have long reading lists on just about every subject I've taught, and I've taught in a college setting, in college setting for 31 years, and I always make them read a bunch of books. And uh, I figure give, and it shall be given unto you, so uh, I'm going to let them have it just the way BBC professors let me have it. But it is good to be here tonight. Now tonight, regarding the presentation, you can feel free to photograph, videotape, it doesn't matter. Nothing I'm showing tonight is top secret. Everything that I'm going to show you tonight is in the public domain. It's all there. When I used this in American Samoa and Pongo Pongo at Monomalo Baptist Church, two state university professors were present. At the end of the service, two of the professors, they, they cornered me and said, why is it we've been through all of our degrees and we have never heard the stuff that you presented? And I said, well, it's always been there, sirs. It's always been there. But they have a bias filter that keeps it away from you. And so I gave them these reading lists. They looked it up. One of these men is now a member of Monomolo Baptist Church at Pongo Pongo. And uh, so great blessing. And uh, God's been able to use this ministry as we go. Um, who would like to receive one of these? We could get maybe the deacons to help us out to pass these things out. If you'd like to receive one of these uh, reading lists, just raise your hand and they'll come on down the aisle and bring a stack. I think Pastor John had a hundred of them made up. And so uh, feel free to raise your hand as they get down there and uh, just grab yourself one. Thank you, man. I appreciate it very much. Also tonight, you need to understand right from the get-go, it is not possible for us to cover every subject. It's just not possible. There is too much out there. The, my problem in these presentations is not that there's too little information to share, there's too much information to share. And so I have to pare it down and, and uh, table it down in order to make that uh, more palatable for the time limits that are often placed upon us in a college course where I have 45 classroom hours to deal with then we can cover a lot more stuff. I have uh, also business cards with me tonight if anybody would like a copy of uh, my business card you can feel see me afterwards I'll be glad to give you one of those. Now just since some of you may not know me or be acquainted with uh, our ministry I start off with just a little introduction faithfactsfinder.com is the name of my website and you can go and see some of the presentations that we do uh, it's an evangelistic ministry dedicated to the facts just sharing the facts and uh, we offer memorable visual presentations for creation seminars church revivals prophecy conferences youth camps family life seminars marriage skills uh, soul winning studies and discipleship training we were missionaries to Hawaii with uh, Central Missionary Clearinghouse for 12 years and then the Baptist Bible Fellowship for the last 10 years as missionaries. And we planted churches on three of the islands. And then in uh, 1990, I was asked by Dr. Baird if I would think about being a BBF missionary, and I was the last 10 years. And then for the last 18 years before moving back here to Springfield to begin this ministry, we were pastor of Lanakila Baptist Church. This is a look at the inside of our auditorium there and one of the celebrations that we had at Lanakila just before we left. We feel that God has led us now into a new ministry dedicated to helping 
others with facts about the Word of God that will help them to hold better, stronger, more effective, more intelligent conversations with those that are outside. But let me say right off the bat, if I could prove to you tonight beyond any shadow of a doubt that there is a God that still isn't going to get you saved. The devil believes in God and trembles, but he's not saved. So all this I'm trying to show you tonight is to demonstrate that God is there, the forensic science. You are here in this auditorium tonight, and if a forensic scientist came into this room, or a, what they call a trace evidence analyst came in this room, they could probably prove you were here. Your fingerprints, maybe a fleck of skin, one of your hairs, your DNA, maybe a footprint in the carpet, they might be able to find forensic evidence of your presence in this room. This is the way we find that God is everywhere because he has left his fingerprints and forensic evidence all over the place. And a person has to be willingly blind to not see it. And so let's talk a little bit about this tonight. On week one, which is tonight, we're going to deal with evolution and the age of the earth, part one. Tonight we'll basically be de dealing with philosophy of evolution and the paradigm of evolution with a little bit of science sprinkled in there. Next week, we are going to be dealing with evolution part two. We're going to get into the science, and we're going to show you actual things that absolutely, beyond any shadow of a doubt, show how vacuous the whole subject of evolution is. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said that in the latter times, men will depart from the faith, and then he goes on to say that they will be turned unto fables. Now, a fable is a... It's an artificial or a made-up story that is told as if it were true. That's a fable. Well, that exactly defines evolution. It is a fable, but it is believed as if it were the truth. During week number three, we're going to deal with dinosaurs. Look at Genesis chapter 6, there says there were giants in the earth. We're going to take a look at that. And then on our last week, we're going to deal with the Genesis flood and Noah's ark. So tonight we're going to begin part number one of evolution. No one likes to be laughed at or made fun of. Uh, I can remember when my father, we were farmers in New Hartford, Iowa, and in 1967 we lost the farm. A couple of bad things happened. Dad had no insurance. There was no way to recover from these catastrophes. And so he sold the farm and we moved to Parkersburg, Iowa, nine miles away, and New Hartford and Parkersburg hated each other. I mean, despised each other. I mean, gangs fought each other. Football games were a riot. It was bitter hatred between these two towns. So I moved to Parkersburg, Iowa, and when I stand up in my very first class, my teacher says, and this is Stephen who moved to us from New Hartford. And I looked over like, are you stupid? Why don't you just hang a target around my neck? I had to have about seven or eight fist fights the next two weeks uh, because she told where I was from. No one likes to be laughed at or made fun of. But do you know Christians and creationists are laughed at all the time? I mean, daily, from, from sources. I mean, newspapers, mocking cartoons, magazines. All the time, they will sprinkle their magazines with articles, cartoons that make fun of Christians. Television does it. So does universities, especially. We'll talk more about that later. This is, for instance, a cartoon that came out when Kansas, the first state in the United States to pass a law that creation science or intelligent design could be taught only the science now, not religion, just the science, in their classrooms. This was a cartoon that came out to make fun of what law had just been passed. Here's one that says creation because it's a lot easier to read one book, the Bible, than a bunch of hard ones, making fun and mocking Christians as if we're all stupid. We're too stupid to understand what they're saying. Here's another one. This meme is all over the internet. Creationists, I'm right, you're wrong, la, 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 I can't hear you. And again, what's it doing? Making Christianists look like a bunch of buffoons. Creations. 
And then this one came out not long ago that we are a bunch of flat earth mentality people. Nobody likes being made fun of, but Christians have it happen to them all the time. Christians and creationists, no matter what their religious persuasion, and you need to understand when I say that, there are Church of Christ people who are also creationists. There are Roman Catholics that are creationists. There are Seventh-day Adventists that are creationists. In other words, they believe there's a God and that he made this stuff, okay? So sometimes we are able to sit down at the same table in complete agreement with these folks when it comes to science. Now, when it comes to the Bible, that's another story, amen? Someday they'll know the truth. But uh, right now they're having problems. So, but they face consistent mockery, worse for believing in the Creator. I heard it was, I believe it was Dr. Jack Vanimpi said regarding 2 Peter chapter 3 that in the last days two specific things are mentioned that it says in the last days scoffers and mockers will come. And then he mentions two specific things in that chapter that they're going to mock and make fun of. One is creation and the second is the flood. And boy do they do it today. Christians go unpublished. You can go to some of the bigger publishers that have the wider circulations and they literally don't even want to touch your book. They're not interested in your literature at all. Not only that, another way is they're censured. If sometimes they're on faculties and the teachers or professors, I know I had public school teachers in my church in Hawaii and they literally hauled into the principal's office and censured. Because one of them, their awful, terrible thing they did in Hawaii was they left their Bible laying on top of their desk in the classroom. They got censured because of that. This kind of thing happens all the time. Data bias. This is why those professors in Pango Pango had never heard of it before because they are literally sanitized from hearing the information that I'm going to share with you. Grants are withheld. If you submit a grant to, say, the National Science Foundation and ask for money to investigate this, they want to know why at the bottom line. What conclusions are you seeking to prove? Just put down that you're trying to prove that uh, the earth is young or the universe is young and see if they give you any money. They're not even interested in touching you. Not only that, sometimes it's just outright public uh, uh, humiliation and intimidation on campuses, especially even Missouri State, and sometimes just flat out pink slip. They just pink slip you because you do not believe what they want you to believe on the staff. They often forget that in 1987, this, the Supreme Court said this in Edwards versus Aguillard, teaching a variety of scientific theories about the origin of humankind to school children might be validly done with the clear secular intent of enhancing the effectiveness of science instruction. In other words, nobody in their right mind wants to, I mean, it'd be nice if we could, but in this current environment we're in, you don't have to walk into a classroom and carry the Bible. If I just show the science, just the science and the experiment that they have done themselves in their secular world, they will have to rethink their entire paradigm. And they don't even want that science. A teacher in Washington State in Seattle was fired. A tenured teacher was fired because all they wanted to do was show science that showed science, not Bible, that showed the earth is a lot younger than evolutionists think it is. And they dismissed them, fired them. And a lawsuit's pending. There's actually, folks may not know this, but there are thousands of lawsuits pending in this country right now over teachers who've been dismissed for certain things that have taken place in the classroom regarding it. Blaise Pascal only lived to be about 39 years old. Young man by our standards, but he was a savant. He was what we would classify today a genius. I mean, at 39 years old, he was already an amazing mathematician, a physicist, a philosopher. He wrote many things. If you can read anything Blaise Pascal wrote, it'll, it'll bless your heart. And he was also a believer. He believed in God. And, uh, you know, evolutionists oftentimes say, now think about this. An evolutionist says, you're going to live, and then when you die, everything goes black. It's all done. That's the end of life for you. There's nothing, there is nothing beyond the, beyond the casket. It's it. Okay? Well, Blaise Pascal, in one of his philosophical arguments, made this statement, and among many hundreds of things he said, this is one I like. If you are right then, and that everything just ends, 
and I am wrong, I lose nothing. But the opposite is also so. He has to bring this up. But if I am right, and there's an eternal hell, and a God that's going to be accounted to, and you're wrong, you're going to lose everything. Now, out of just pure logic, you ought to want to default on the safer side. Amen? Just out of pure logic. Now, let's just start on the philosophical side here. What if this screen, this white screen, represented all the human knowledge that there is? I mean, everything that NASA knows, everything that Goddard Space Center knows, everything the Russian Space Science or a Science and Space Administration knows, everything that, everything that is taught in a classroom, everything standing in every book, in every library in the entire world, that screen represents all of that knowledge, from the smallest mathematical formula to the most intense and detailed formulas. Okay, now let me ask you this question. How much of that knowledge could any one person say that they know? By the way, you can do this on a napkin if you're talking with an atheist. Because when I witness to him, I first say, are you an honest atheist or a dishonest atheist? And they'll say, well, I'm an honest atheist, an honest guy. Okay, all right, good. And then hand him a napkin and pull your pen out. Hand me your pen and approach it just like this and say that napkin stands literally for all the human knowledge there is in the world. Now, put a dot on that napkin the size of how much of that human knowledge you know. Of all the human knowledge in the world, how much do you know? Well, let's say if you had a couple PhDs, maybe your dot would be about that big. Okay, now... Can I ask a kindergarten question based on what you've just shown me on this napkin? If that's true, how could you or anyone else be so arrogant as to say there is no God? You haven't even got a clue about the knowledge of man. You know so little about the knowledge of man. My eye doctor in Hawaii said he was an evolutionist until he was in dental school. And then he said he noticed that at the top of the eye, there's a muscle that comes over the top of the human eye, and it literally weaves in and out of the lateral muscles over the eye. It weaves in and out several times so it can control up and down motion and upper right, upper left, down. It controls that type of motion. He said that had to be by design. That could never have evolved. He says at that moment, he said the witnessing he had received from church and from Campus Crusade, he said, I got down on my knees and got saved in my dormitory. Trusted Christ as my Savior. He said, just looking at the human eye. So how much of that knowledge? Now, if, if that's all you have, and by the way, when I'm witnessing someone, I use a napkin, then I say, you know, really an agnostic is, an atheist says there is no God, but they're not smart enough to be able to say that. But an agnostic says there may be a God, but you can't know it. And the guy says, yeah, 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 that's, that's what I am. And so then I immediately say, now, are you an honest agnostic or a dishonest agnostic? <laughs> and there's another road we could go down on that one, okay, on how to witness to him. What evolutionists are actually doing is running away from God. A great book was written by a Catholic bishop called Journey Away from God. It's a tremendous book but because it shows what the root of evolution is, that it is, has Satan as its origin that they want to drive, they want, they want to come up with anything that is alternate to God. And they're on a journey away from God. But the truth is, it all had to come from somewhere. And the truth is this, you have to, in your own heart or mind, you can ignore it at your own peril, but everybody that's a thinking person has got to have looked at the universe around them, a tree, a flower, and wondered, where did this come from? It had to come from somewhere. And the truth is, you only have two options. When you boil it right down, there's only two options. It either came from divine creation, you can call it an intelligent designer, the prime mover, the other. It either came from a divine creator with a mind behind it, or it's just a pure accident of nature. And it isn't just, it's almost wrong to say accident singular because what they would actually be depending on is about 10 million consecutive accidents, one right after another. 
in order to come up with evolution. You only have two options. Now, evolution has other names. Accidental nature uh, has other more common names that are used. Evolution, natural selection, survival of the fittest, randomness or random universe. You'll hear these things, kind of phrases used all the time. Evolution, likewise, or creationism, is sometimes called intelligent design. Creation ex nihilo, if you hear that. I used to have to always tell them in Hawaii because we have a capital city of one of our islands that's Hilo. And so when I say creation ex nihilo, I'm not making fun of the city of Hilo. Okay, ex nihilo means out of nothing or from nothing. Or, for instance, the Genesis account of creation. But these are it, either God or gods did it or he didn't. Those are your options. Now, where does the strongest evidence point? Okay, well, let's, we're going to look at. First thing I want tonight, remember we're dealing part one with the basic philosophy and paradigm of evolution. Three things that evolution needs to survive today in our current atmosphere. Three things it needs. Number one is it needs state protection. Can I tell you something? If evolution did not have state protection, 90% of those that are in evolution would probably have to rethink everything they've been taught. But they're protected by the state. Only one thing gets taught here. That's what they'll say. We will not allow anything else. They need state protection. They need Christians to be muzzled, if at all possible. Second thing they need is they need unscientific coincidences. And they're not scientific, but they just need coincidences. I actually heard one of their premier scientists get up at a symposium and say, it must have happened because I'm here. And I'm going, wow, that's science. That's, that's, wow, that's, that's really scientific. Sounds more religious than scientific to me. They need unscientific coincidences to have happened. And the third thing they need is a magical time frame. I mean abracadabra stuff. They need a magical time frame. And we'll talk more about that as we go. So let's, let's, let's start now. Now is where we're going to begin. We've gotten the introduction out of the way. Now we're going to begin with evolution. So let's start with a primer on evolution. What I'm about to share with you, the truth is, many people who say they're evolutionists don't even know the stuff I'm about to share with you. They just say it because they're hoping if they say it, you'll shut up and go away. And they won't have to deal with you any farther than that. So let's talk about this. The information that we're going to share with you isn't secret. It's available. A guy told me one time, he says, where in the world are you getting all this stuff? I told him, I know how to read. <laughs> this is not top secret stuff. So here's four things they need you to believe. If These are like uh, foundation stones. They need you to believe these four things. If you will believe these four things, they're moving you down the road. They need you to go. Number one is that the universe and the earth are billions with a B, years old. That's the first one. They've got to get you to believe that. Number two is that everything we see is caused by random accidents. Number three is that evolution is a proven fact. It's not, not even close, but that's okay. They need you to accept that. Why do you think it's repeated on television like that all the time? It's a proven fact. You can't argue with this. And then number four is that the Bible and science are incompatible. That's faith. You just keep your faith in a little box on Sunday. The rest of the week, it's all about science. The two are not compatible. No, no, we're going to find out just how compatible they really, really are. The one that says the earth is billions of years old, first of all, that's bad science because the truth is there's not one, not even one scientific experiment that can give them the billions of years that they need. They'll never tell you that. Number two, that everything's random accidents. That's no science in that at all. That's just spouting off. That's pseudoscience. Number three, that evolution's a proven fact. That's no science at all. Now you're just being a dogmatist. There's no science behind that. And the last one, that the Bible and science is incompatible, that's just bias. That's just outright hatred for the Word of God. So, all four of these statements are completely false and they all lead to bad outcomes. Can I tell you the outcome they ultimately end up with? 
is eternal hellfire and separation from God. That's where it ends up. So these are the four things they need you to believe. But here's the one principle that they live by. This is their one principle. It's a 17-letter word. You ought to write it down, and we're going to practice saying it tonight, okay? Everybody's got to learn it. Here it is, okay? This is the one word that is an anchor to their ship. Now let's everybody say uniformitarianism. One more time. Uniformitarianism. One more time. Uniformitarianism. It's an anchor to their ship. They have no choice. This is their foundational principle in evolution. Well, what in the world is that? Well, they're tied to this, just like an anchor to a ship, but here's the definition. It goes all the way back to Dr. Charles Lyell. Dr. Charles Lyell, who preceded Darwin, Charles Darwin, he was a taxonomist, a French taxonomist, and he's the one that came up with this basic principle. Darwin incorporated it into his book, and so on. It simply states with the simplest definition is the current speeds of motion buildup and decay activity are the same today as in ages past. Everything proceeds at the same rate forever. Now why is that even important? Well, this assumption is then used to develop what are called dating formulae. And that doesn't, has nothing to do with boys and girls at age 18, okay? This is not that kind of dating formulae, okay? But it has to do with dating and cosmological and geological events. Let me just give you three illustrations, okay, that they use this for to try to stump Christians. For example, Grand Canyon. How many of you heard that the Colorado River carved the Grand Canyon? How many have heard that? Yeah. Can I ask a kindergarten question? Okay. A kindergarten question. If that itty-bitty river carved that great big canyon, moving all of that stuff, where should I be able to find that stuff? Kindergarten question. Where should I be able to go and find all the guts of the canyon? At the end of the river, wouldn't you think? Is it there? No, it's not. So apparently that little river did not carve that canyon. But here's what they do. They say, well, it's wearing the canyon away and the river is dropping at approximately one half or one quarter of an inch per year. And so they go, okay, if the river was clear up at the top, see the assumption? The river was clear up at the top and it just ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and, ate and, ate and got all the way down there. How many millions of years would that be? It'd be 180 million years. There you go. There's your formula. All wrong. What about tectonics? They do it all the time with tectonics. They know that the earth used to have a single continent. They call it Pangaea. And it has split up into the seven continents that we have today. And here's what they do. They say, well, the continent plates are like a puzzle and they rub up against each other and they move approximately an inch and a half a year, some more than that, some less than that. But just give an average, a mean of about one inch and a half. And then how, did they, how long did it take them to move from one single continent to the, where they're located now? And so they just do that simple math at an inch and a half a year and bingo, they have 235 million years. See how they do that? It's all built on an assumption that everything proceeds at the same speed always. They do the same thing with stalagmites. How many of you have ever been down in Carlsbad Caverns or some cavern that's got stalagmites? Everybody. And they want to tell you, now that drip, 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 drip's got a little bit of calcium, cal calcium carbonate in it, just a little microgram of calcium carbonate. And how long would it take that one little drip of that microgram of calcium carbonate to drip, 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 and build that gigantic column? And so they add it all up. They do the formula, and they tell you it took millions of years. What they don't tell you is that during the flood, as the, as the layers started coming down in the ocean, and pressure, great pressure was put on the land, that that calcium carbonate squirted into those caverns like toothpaste out of a tube and plop, 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 built that whole column and then slowed down to a stop as those layers hardened. And now it has slowed down to a microgram in a drop every year. But see how they build formula based on what? Uniformitarianism, that everything proceeds at the same speed. By the way, that's going to come back to bite them later on. We'll talk about that later. The two creators of evolution. Most people always know the guy on the left. His name was? There you go. They don't, they've never heard, most people have never even heard of the guy on the right. 
But actually, Alfred Wallace came up with it first. And he was going to publish. And politics got involved. Alfred Wallace came up with it, and he contacted the Linnaean Society to publish his article. And so the editor of the Linnaean Society magazine was personal friends with Charles Darwin. Tea buddies. So he went to Charles and he said, you know, you took the trip on the HMS Beagle, and I know you've been kind of been building this thought, but Alfred Wallace has written an article and we're going to be publishing. He said, if you want, I'll hold up the publication of his article so that you can write a matching article and we'll publish them both at the same time. So they stalled and delayed the publication of Alfred Wallace. Meanwhile, he's on pins and needles wondering what's happening to this. Mr. Darwin, and when he sees the magazine come out, him and Darwin, now he already knew he lost right then. The reason is, Alfred Wallace didn't have two French francs to rub together. He was a poor professor. But guess what? Mr. Darwin married into the Wedgwood fortune. Have you ever heard of Wedgwood crystal? Wedgwood china? Wedgwood pottery? Millions, hundreds of millions of pounds. And Darwin had that at his disposal. That's why we call it today Darwinism rather than Wallaceanism. Of course, Darwinism sounds better. I guess it rolls off the tongue better than Wallaceanism. But these are the two creators of it. Now let me show you two books that shook the world. Darwin in 1859 published his book. Number one was this one, The Origin of Species, On the Origin of Species. Oftentimes the book is just called Origin. It is wrong to say the origin or origin of the species because it's not. It's an origin of all species. But that is not the entire title of the book. Most people do not realize what the full title of his book is. Here's the full title of his book. On the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. That's the title of his book. A couple words I'd like to point out to you in his title. Okay? Favored races. And look at this word, struggle. Another guy came along about 80 years later and co-opted, or about 70 years later, and co-opted the information he got out of this book. It was this guy. And he wrote a book called in German, it's called Mein Kampf. And how does that translate into English? My struggle. And he took his title directly from Darwin's book. Now, can I tell you something? You can just bet that evolution does not wish to claim credit for the death, horror, and sadness that their views have brought upon the world. You try to connect evolution to the communist dictatorship in Russia, and they'll get angry. You connect them to Adolf Hitler, they'll get angry. Connect them to the slaughter of Fidel Castro in Cuba, they'll get angry. Because, see, they don't want to be attached to the bad stuff that their philosophy produces. Now, which form of evolution would you like to discuss? Microevolution, which, by the way, is called horizontal evolution, or macroevolution, which is called vertical evolution. Now, let's talk for just a moment about this. Again, I'm sharing with you something. The average evolutionist, when they say, I'm an evolutionist, they don't even have a clue that there's several types. Microevolution is fact-based. However, macroevolution is fiction-based. So what do the two actually mean? Well, let me just make it succinct for you. Microevolution, horizontal evolution, okay, is explains changes within the species. Look at just this room. We're different sizes, different shapes. At about 18, you stop growing vertically. We probably don't stop growing horizontally for many years. But we're different, but yet we're the same. We're still people. If a Japanese woman married a black man from Nigeria, guess what they're going to have? Children. They're still people but yet they're different. That's microevolution. Explains the difference of the darter frogs of Central America, the leopard frog where I grew up in the North Midwest, and the gigantic bullfrog. The biggest bullfrog in the world is in Ghana, Africa. It's 18 inches when it sets down from its nose in a sitting position from its nose to its butt. 
18 inches long. Now that would, how many of you ever eaten frog legs? Yeah, man, I'd like to bite into that leg. I'll bet you it's bigger than Kentucky Fried Chicken any day. And then, of course, there's vertical evolution, macro evolution. And it says, if you give a frog, and they actually believe this, that amphibia became avia, if you give a frog enough time, it will eventually change into an altogether new species. That was at the base of what Darwin was doing. He believed that if you take microevolution data and extrapolate it over time, lots and lots of time, you'll get another creature entirely. That's macroevolution. Well, let me tell you something. It's a complete fantasy. It's a farce. Never, never. They've never witnessed it. They can't prove it. It's just, it's made up. Why is it made up? Because they don't want to have God as the other option. So they have no choice. Now, there are actually four different evolutionary theories that are out there. If you think every professor at MSU or Harvard University or Berkeley, wherever, that they all believe the same, they don't. They don't. There's, of course, the most popular one, the most widely known one, Darwinism. Okay? Started by Charles Darwin, came out in 1859. And then there's theistic evolution that was produced and published by Asa Gray in 1876. Then... In 1972, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge, Stephen Jay Gould was the head of the science department at Harvard, and Niles Eldridge was the head of the science department at Chicago University. These two men co-conspired to produce what is known as punctuated equilibria, or punctuated evolution. And then the fourth kind, how many of you ever know what DNA is? You've heard of DNA? Well, this is the guy that discovered it and won the Nobel Prize, is Francis Crick. And Dr. Francis Crick, in 1981, produced ufological evolution. So let's talk about these. First of all, not every evolutionist is a Darwin, a Darwinian. Actually, only 46% of evolutionists out there today are Darwinian. 12% are theistic evolution because Darwin has so much stuff they can't explain. They need to plug God in there, so that's exactly what Asa Gray did. He just plugged in God into the hard parts. And then came along Stephen Gould, and the reason he produced his, we'll talk about, is because there was a complete vacuum of what they needed to prove Darwinism, so he produced this new theory. And then ufological came along, and there's 12% of them are ufological. And the fastest growing number up there is the one in the lower right-hand corner. E.T. did it, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Of course, my kindergarten question again is, even if E.T. seeded this earth, who created E.T.? Somebody had to make E.T. But anyway, well, we're, why, why, do these, why are these other theories even necessary? I thought Darwin had it all figured out. It's because of a complete failure of Darwinism. They know there's failure, so they have to come up with this other stuff. The reason Darwin's theory isn't good enough, there's many reasons, but the only two I need to show you tonight, number one, is there's no way to explain the sudden burst of cellular life on the earth. In the Precambrian era, all of a sudden in that layer, there is life. And I don't mean just a little speck of life, I mean millions of fossils, microfossils. Where in the world did these come from? Where is the evolutionary advancement that produced these microfossils? Doesn't exist. And they have no explanation for the cellular burst of life on this planet. But reason number two and the biggest is. If you tell me that amphibia became avia, if frogs became birds, should I not somewhere in the evolutionary record and digging and paleontology, should I not be able to find brog and furred fossils? I should be able to find millions of fossils showing the development from a frog to a bird. And guess what? There aren't any. These are known as transitional fossil forms, and they have found none. None. So, the four evolutionary theories simplified. Let's talk about the rise of evolution. I think these are funny. I pulled these out. I wanted you to see them. Just every once in a while we have to laugh. Amen? <laughs> the next three come from women. Women created the next three. Here's the evolution of women according to women. Okay, and the National Organization of Women produced this one. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, 
And then, of course, there's this one. Uh, but I frankly, I, I like the one of Legos, the evolution of Legos. Amen. All right, let's talk about the four theories of evolution illustrated. First, Darwinian evolution. Exactly what is that? Okay, I'm going to give it to you as, succinct, as succinctly as possible. At first, there was this original cell, this simple cell. Now, we'll talk later that there is no such thing as a simple cell. But this first cell, we'll just give them for the sake of argument, we'll give them the first cell. Then what happened after the first cell was it found way to replicate itself. And as it replicated itself, it mutated. And it continued to mutate until the rise of man. This is Darwinian evolution. A constant, slow change of, uh, chain of changes. In fact, Darwin said if it wasn't for slow, gradual changes, there could be no evolution. That was his theory. And then came theistic evolution. They realized, well, you have to explain where that first cell came from, and they can't. There's so many things you have to explain in Darwinism, which absolutely has no expression, uh, explanation. So along came Asa Gray, and Asa Gray said, God did it. And I'm always amazed that the God of theistic evolution is strong enough to do that, but not powerful enough to do what the Bible said he did. So what they're really saying is they don't believe this book. And so God made the first cell, and after that point, Asa Gray's theory is just basically Darwinianism. It's basically the same, except in the end it came up Adam and Eve instead of man. Then came the next one, punctuated evolution. There was the original life. And they'd have no explanation of where that came from, but Dr. Gould at Eldridge said, and then millions of years passed, and then poof, there was this sudden thing. It just exploded, and there was this life everywhere, like a grenade went off, and all of a sudden there was life all over the place. And then nothing happened for millions of years. Remember, they can't find any transitional fossils. So they have to explain what came in between the brog or the frog and the bird, okay? Since there's no brogs or ferds, they have to explain it. Millions of years passed, and poof, there was amphibia. And then millions of years passed, and poof, there was avia. And then millions of years passed, and poof, there was primates. This is Niles Eldridge, head of the science department at Harvard University. In fact, his buddy, before he died, Dr. Eldridge died in 2003. He's a believer now, okay? He's a believer now. Dr. Eldridge, at a symposium of scientists, actually said these two quotes, and I, I look at it, and I'm just thinking, and this is a lettered man that said this stuff. One quote from the symposium was this. A scientist is actually controlled by just two things. The weight of his or her academic credentials and the breadth of his or her imagination. In other words, as long as you hold a powerful enough position, you can say anything you want and they have to believe you. Wow, that is a very cold statement to make. And then he also said this, it is therefore not unreasonable nor to assume that, nor illogical to declare, that an alligator could have laid her eggs in the sand, and when they hatched, one spread its wings and flew away. What? A man with multiple PhDs. Wow. And you know what's worse? Is when he says things like that, you watch the audience and they're going, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got to take notes on this. Are you kidding me? But anyway, that's just me. Punctuated equilibria. And then there's Ufological by Francis Crick, 1981. He said, he, he said E.T. did it. E.T. came down just like planting a garden, seeded the first. Lots of movies, by the way, have been made about this. Do you know that? It's true. I mean, uh, there's a lot of them out there. Mission to Mars, all based on Francis Crick's philosophy. But after that point, it's just Darwinism. ETC did it, and they come back to visit and tend the garden every once in a while, pull the weeds, but basically it's just Darwinism after that point. But there's actually four kinds, so next time somebody says, I'm an evolutionist, ask them, which kind are you? And that'll shock them. They won't have an answer. Usually they have no idea. The crumbling pillars of evolutionary theory. First of all, they depend on coincidental stuff. 
coincidences. I want to, first of all, let me just show you a fundamental definition of evolution. And no matter how this sounds, it's absolutely true. It's 100% true. This is the definition of evolution. It is the belief that there was nothing and something happened to nothing. Then nothing somehow magically exploded for no reason and created everything. Then everything, for no reason whatsoever, arranged itself into self-replicating bits of matter that turned into mankind. And I'm going, holy cow, okay, now, now we can call it science. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. So by design or accident, let me just show you six of literally, again, my problem is not having enough evidences to show you tonight, but having too many. Let me just show you a few that they depend on as pure coincidence. Protocosmology. Where did the singularity come from that they say exploded and created all this? Please. Now here's their latest theory. You ready? It expands and then contracts back to the singularity. Then blows up and expands and comes back. And I said, okay, let's go backwards. Okay, you're going like this. I'm going to go this way. Comes back. Go. There we go. Here we are now. Where'd this come from? They still have no answer. No answer whatsoever. Where did the singularity come from? How did it originate? No answer whatsoever. Well, what about cellular genesis? I really love them. I like to, this one really twists the brain. Cellular genesis, they talk about the simple cell like there is such a thing. Do you know that there's approximately 600 different proteins that require amino acid chains, some of them from the lowest of about 105 amino acids all the way up to about seven or 8,000 amino acids in the chain to make proteins that tells the body the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, and so on. Your body manufactures those within the cell. Now here's the thing. Amino acids can only be produced in oxygen-free atmosphere because oxygen destroys amino acids. And that's why it's produced in a closed membrane of a cell. But guess what? The membrane around a cell is made up of about 50 or 60 different proteins. Who made the proteins that became the membrane in order for the laboratory to produce the proteins to make the membrane? Hmm. Again, pure coincidence. They have no idea. There's no such thing as a simple cell. What about biosymmetrics? Why is there such a genetic balance in this world? Now, there's a couple creatures God has made in this world, and I think he just did it because of a sense of humor. He's got some that can reproduce themselves. They don't even need a mate. Uh, and that's okay. Maybe he just ran out of genetic material and said, well, I'm just going to make you what you are. You can do both. And, uh, but by and large, guess what? Male and female. What a coincidence that it developed male and female. Amen? Plus, have you noticed last time you looked in the mirror, you have two ears, two eyes, two noses, or, well, two nostrils, two nostrils in your noses anyway, okay? You get that? Biosymmetrics. Balanced. Two hands, two legs, two feet. Biosymmetrics. It's not an accident. It's designed. It's a design. What about this one? Species symbiosis. Do you know there are tens, literally tens of thousands of couplets in the world where one species absolutely depends on the other for survival? Now the name of that flower is a peony flower. Did you know the peony flower cannot open and bloom unless ants, certain ants, chew the wax off the blossom? And the ants have to have that wax in order to produce its young. So which evolved first, the peony flower or the ant? And that's just one example of literally tens of thousands of circumstances like that. What about anthropic equilibria? Oh my goodness, I, I've, I've dived with scuba dive. When you go down deep, you gotta, have, you gotta watch your oxygen, nitrogen mix. You have to change the air that you're breathing because of the pressure that is on you. But we live when we're at the surface of this planet in what is known as anthropic equilibria. I mean, everything is absolutely amazing. The nitrogen, oxygen mix in this planet is, and carbon mix is absolutely perfect for you to be alive, and God put plants on this world because plants use the byproduct you exhale. What a neat system. Talk about symbiosis. There's another one for you. And I love this one, conspicuous design. 
Karen and I were just up there. Dr. Baskin was just, in fact, we met about probably a stone's throw from that thing. And if we had a pair of binoculars, we might have been able to see it. But, Doc, did you, you ever been there? Did you stand there like I did and look at that and say, would you look at what wind and rain erosion did? <laughs> did you say that? I don't think Doc said that, okay? Come on, we're smart enough to look at something and go, maybe I don't know that that's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. I don't know who they are and I don't know why they did it, but I know it was designed even if I don't understand the purpose. Conspicuous design. You know how many millions of things there are in this world that are conspicuously designed? Like the way the muscle goes over the eye to give you upward motion in your eyeball. Okay, now let's talk about coded information. Everybody said they heard Dr. Francis Crick in his DNA. What is this right here? Okay, all right. This is a CD, DVD. They look the same. Can't tell the difference. But here they are. Information storage devices is what they really are. Now there's information on here, and it's coded. Now can I get the information off this disk by going like this? Doesn't work. How about if I touch the microphone to it? That didn't work either. How about my tongue? This is a coding device. This is an informational storage device and it's encoded. And unless you have one of those, you're not going to extract the information that's on here. Now symbiosis again. Remember this. This is a perfect picture of the DNA molecule. The DNA molecule is simply a molecule that is an information storage molecule. It has a double helix that if I held it up, it's about seven feet long, every one of them, and if I held it up right about here, it would stretch all the way to the floor, but you wouldn't be able to see it because it's a thousand times smaller than a human hair. But it's coated with information. And guess what? This thing is nothing but a frisbee unless I have some way to extract the information. The same thing is also true of this. The RNA molecule is the information extractor. The RNA molecule goes up and it tickles the DNA. Okay, we're going to use the technical term. Okay, it tickles the DNA and the DNA opens up and the RNA molecule goes in just like Braille just like reading Braille, and it just runs up the helix because it's got to produce a certain protein. So it runs up the helix and it finds the protein and it's reading it. While it's doing it, it's downloading the information to itself. And then it comes out after it gets the information and it tickles the little DNA and DNA closes back up into its gelatinous little ball. And then it runs in the cell right over to the port, plugs in, downloads the information, and they assemble the amino acids that produce that protein for your body. Which molecule evolved first? Which molecule evolved first? The DNA molecule or the RNA molecule? Let's talk about undiscussed evidence of the Big Bang. Everyone's heard about the Big Bang. You've got to be kidding. 15 to 20 billion years ago, that's as close as they can narrow it down. This happened. The proto-matter of the universe was in a singularity, which exploded and it produced all the galactic stuff that in the world. Chaos became order from this gigantic explosion. Can anybody name one explosion in the world that ever produced order? What does an explosion actually do? Take it from an army guy, it wrecks things. It does not produce order, it produces chaos. And so they, it doesn't do, so what's the problem? Well, there's actually a couple things we could discuss. Again, and it's not a having a, not enough information, it's having too much information to share. Among the things, there are certain last, uh, laws of stellar physics that throw suspicion on the Big Bang. It's called perpendicular ballistics and congruent velocity. Let's talk about perpendicular ballistics first. Perpendicular ballistics says this. The directional bearing of any projectile will follow a trajectory perpendicular to the point of origin unless or until it is acted upon by a contravening object or force. Sounds a lot like Newton's second law, but it just means from the explosion point everything's going to go one direction unless it's bumped or knocked, or knocked around by something else that contravenes. Okay? 
Then there's congruent velocities. This one is also very, very interesting. It simply means this. It's the comparative velocities of ejected debris from a common explosive source will demonstrate a mathematically consistent ratio or algorithmic relativity in acceleration or deceleration. All right, Brother Weigel, human language, okay, in English, okay. Here it is. I'll show it to you plainly. Here's what they find. If they say the Big Bang is here, X marks the spot. This is where the Big Bang, and they do. They think they know. They tell you they know the spot of the Big Bang. Okay, then should we not, based on perpendicular ballistics, should we not be able to find every galaxy moving away from that point, yes or no? Yeah. Is that what they actually find out there? No, that is not the science. What they actually find, they find some galaxies that are moving obliquely to their point of explosion. How in the world did that happen? They actually find some that are in regressive movement. They're actually moving toward the point that they say the explosion to. And some that are even weirder is they're just moving in circular, rotating movement. They're not proceeding in any direction. They're just going around in circles. Doesn't sound like a big bang to me. At least not one. A Lutheran minister, I was listening to him on a radio one time in St. Louis, and he said, uh, okay, if you want a big bang, he said, I'll give you a big bang. In the beginning, there was a big bang, and God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, there you go. That's about as good as you're going to get. And then there's the congruent velocities. Wouldn't it make sense that they're moving at the same, if the explosive force, then shouldn't all the galaxies be moving at approximately or at least in relationship to each other by algorithmic constant, the same speeds? No, they're not. They find some that are in close are moving slow. They find some that are far out are moving slow. And the opposite is also true. Some that are in close, they find them moving at supersonic speeds, and some that they find way out, far out, they're also moving at the same supersonic speed. So, how in the world can you explain that based on a singular explosion? Now we come to evolution's touchiest subject, time. Time is evolution's Achilles heel. Because the truth is, in order for everything to evolve, there has to be enough time. Too much complexity, not enough time. The problem of complexity. Do you know that they did not always believe the Earth was 4.57? By the way, you know why they say 4.57? Because it sounds more scientific. Do they actually have a formula that proves the number 4.57? No. It just sounds smarter so that people won't argue with it. Here's the actual record. In 1750, they believed the earth was 75,000 years old. My textbooks, when I was in school, this literally happened in my, while I was in school. In 1964, my textbook said that the earth was 2 billion years old. Those textbooks were traded in. The next year's textbook said the earth is 3 billion years old. And then we traded it in. And the next year they said the earth is 4 billion. They came up with a couple extra billion years in just two years' time. And since 1970, they've been saying 4.57. And now they're throwing around approximately 5 billion. Why are they always upping this? Well, they're upping it for the reason of complexity. As our telescopes and our microscopes get better, they are finding even at the micro level, things are so complex they had to be designed. And in order for them to have evolved, they need what? Time. Time. Do you know just 120 years ago, they used to believe the human cell was just a ping pong ball filled with goo? Just 120 years ago. And now they look at a human cell and, oh my goodness, it's a complex machine. I mean, look at all the parts to a normal cell. And by the way, that's, that's not even the most complex cell. The most complex cell is the neuro cell. And, and the, the nerve cell is just um, is 100 times more complex than this type of cell. And all these various things are in there, the nucleus, the Golgi apparatus, the, the, the contrioles, the, the, there's so many parts to the thing, and they all have very important actions and functions. This chart was made by a German scientist, Dr. Gerhard, and I can't read that, Michael, I believe it was, Dr. Gerhard Michael. This is all the functions of a human cell in one second. And this, I can't show you the whole chart. So we'll just blow up just this part here, and we'll blow up that part. 
All this is happening within your cell every second. All this stuff. So there are more functions. Here's an accurate statement based on Dr. Gerhard's findings. There are more functions, electrical impulses, and biochemical exchanges of data in a human cell in one second than the total number of phone calls, emails, and texts in the city like New York City in a month, in one second. And we're going to say that this evolved. So the next time somebody tells you, hear someone say the evolution of the simple cell, just remind them there is no such thing. Evolution has a made-up or invented timeline. Here's their timeline. 15 to 20 billion years ago, there was the Big Bang. And then 10 to 12 billion years ago, the galaxies slow-cooled, spiraled, and so on. And so the Milky Way galaxy is 15 to 20 or 10 to 12 billion years old. Then our solar system coalesced 8 to 9 billion years ago. And then... The Earth, 4.57 billion years ago, slow-cooled from hot molten to what it is today. 600 million years ago, the first amino acids were produced in a puddle of goo by a lightning strike, even though lightning and electricity destroys amino acids. It doesn't make them, but never mind. We won't deal with that. And then one to two million years ago, the first human upright stood up named Homo habilis. Homo habilis stood up one to two billion or million years ago. But it's all just a fairy tale. It's all just made up. There's no science to it at all. Evolutionists have to have tons of experience and scientific experiments and scientific data to prove that their claims are true, right? Wrong. They don't. They just say it. If they say it loud enough and often enough, it will be believed. You know who's, who said that quote? If you tell a lie often enough and loud enough, it will be believed? Adolf Hitler. And they just keep saying the same thing. They don't have any scientific experience. They make assumptions. And their assumptions, they build an entire philosophy on assumptions because they need vast amounts of time for complexity. Check out this long list. Now, this is a long list of scientific experience. Not done by Christians. These were done by secular universities and secular science labs. Everything from the decay of Earth's magnetic field all the way down to the decay of uranium radiogenic lead, the decay of potassium to argon, to the erosion of the rings of Saturn, to the influx of oceanic gold from land. And here's 69, here's, this makes 69 I'm showing you. The influx of oceanic silver from rivers all the way down to lunar orbit gravitational decay. These are actual empirical scientific tests that can be done. All done by secular scientists in their various studies. So of these 69 experiments, here's what we know. The greatest amount of time they found in all 69 was 500 million years. Is that enough for evolution? Not even close. The smallest amount of time they found in these tests was that the Earth is less than 100 years old. Well, we know something's got to be wrong with that, amen? And the average time, if we took all 69 experiments, joined them together, averaged them, is 32 million years. Can't even come close to what they need. So evolution cannot cite even one scientific test that confirms the age of the earth. They need 15 to 20 billion years for their theory to even have a leg to stand on. And all they can scientifically prove is 2.5% of what they need but they still spout it like it's a fact when they have absolutely no legs to stand on. They want you to believe that the earth and universe are like that guy. This is an old ancient planet, old universe, old solar system. It's a scrunchy, wrinkly, mean guy. But the truth is, when we do tests, this is what we find. It's a baby. And so what we're going to find out we're going to consider all the evidence, and next week we're going to deal with the science. But know this, this you need to leave with this and understand this. As a creationist, I do not have to prove to anyone that the earth is somewhere between six and 12,000 years old, which is the best scientific place you can land, somewhere between six and 12,000 years old. So I don't have to prove that to anyone. All I have to prove, since there's only two options, is that the universe, solar system, moon, and the earth cannot possibly be as old as they say it is, and guess what happens? Their entire paradigm collapses.
Time is their worst enemy. Next week, we're going to deal with the scientific facts that make the concept of evolution not only bad science, but reveal that it was constructed upon a premise of godliness. So next week, we're going to show that these four cosmic bodies, the universe, the sun, the moon, the earth, they're just babies, cosmologically speaking. Just babies. So today, we've dealt with part one. Next week, we're going to deal with part two of evolution. Remember, even if you walk out of here and say, Brother Weigel, prove to me there's got to be a God, that's not going to get you to heaven. You have to ask the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and trust His Son for the forgiveness of your sins or you're never going to make it.